Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right righteousness. Be anxious by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, tonight, before we get started, we have a couple of different things we're going to do this evening. But we will have an interesting evening, some interesting things. So before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful that we live in this nation. We're thankful that we have the liberty we have to gather together to study your word. We still have the liberty to proclaim the gospel, though there have been restrictions made on where and when and how we can uh, give our adoration to you and celebrate various uh, holidays related to Christianity. We understand that we live in the devil's world and that our citizenship is not here, but it's in heaven. And we are here as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. We fulfill our role as ambassadors by learning how to think in terms of the uh, culture of divine viewpoint, the culture of heaven, not the culture of the world. And as we do that, we grow, we mature, and we glorify you in everything that we do in life. Now, Father, we pray as we continue our study and Kings this evening that you challenge us with the principles we learn related to prayer and the faith rest drill, and that we also learn how to apply these things more consistently in our own prayer life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started with our uh, study in Kings, I want to take some time, as I mentioned last Thursday night, to go through a few things, sort of walk us through chronologically the historical events of 1836. This is an important year for us in the United States. It's an important year because for the first time in numerous years we have a sitting president and vice president that are not running for president or vice president, and we have, in my opinion, the most bizarre slate of <laughs> candidates that this country has seen in a long time. And we get the leaders that we deserve. This is a principle that comes out of a study of the book of Judges, that just as in the culture of Israel at that time, as every man did what was right in their own eyes, as moral relativism set in, the culture of Israel deteriorated down through the centuries and that period of the judges lasts, lasts between three and 400 years. And it's during that time that God raises up a number of leaders, but each successive leader is more and more influenced by the culture around him. He becomes more and more pagan, uh, more and more relative. Uh, he, he succumbs more and more to his own form of relative thinking. And by the time you get to the end of the period of the judges, then what you have is a, is a time when Israel is under the tyranny of the Philistines. The Philistines, we know from 1 Samuel, are exercising an early form of arms control. They're restricting the use of uh, what for them was modern technology, which is the use of iron. They prohibited anybody from being a blacksmith in Israel, which meant that the best that the Jews could have was bronze weapons. They couldn't have the iron weapons of the Philistines. And this is a typical ploy 
of tyrannical governments. It was true of the British during the time uh, right before the American Revolution that the British began to have unlawful searches and seizures of weapons. It was true also in Texas. And at this time of year, we often think about uh, the history of Texas. Now, some of you weren't born here, and I know you got here as fast as you could. And others of you were were born here, and there are a few here who have uh, ancestors that go back uh, several generations. Mine don't go back as far as some. I think that the first uh, person in my line to come to Texas arrived somewhere in uh, the late 1840s or early 18, uh, 1850s. But Texas has a tremendous history, and it's this time of year that, that we ought to think about it, because in February, beginning actually the 23rd, which was this last Saturday, is the anniversary of when Santa Ana first brought the Mexican army into San Antonio, to which began the siege of the Alamo. On March the 2nd, because at the same time that Santa Ana was invading Texas, the uh, 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 Constitutional Congress was meeting up in Washington on the Brazos, and they were uh, crafting the Texas Declaration of Independence, and that was signed on, on or about March the 2nd. That's the date where we usually celebrate Texas Independence Day, which for those of you who haven't been around here very long, that used to be a public school holiday and still should be in light of some of the other irrational holidays that we have. And then on April the 21st, which is San Jacinto Day, uh, we used to always get that day off as well to celebrate the defeat of the, of the uh, Mexican army at San Jacinto, which was still considered one of the classic battles in military history, one of the ten most significant uh, battles in all of human history. It lasted only 18 minutes, and the consequences were uh, quite uh, significant for all of the Western Hemisphere. So I thought this year, in light of our need to be, rem- uh, in light of the election, we need to be reminded of what liberty is really all about and how we get liberty. And we have liberty because there are men and women in every generation who give their lives to purchase liberty for us. Of course, the greatest liberty that we have is the liberty we have spiritually because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And at uh, Golgotha, he secured the greatest liberty in the greatest battlefield of all time. And as we look at our history, both as Americans and as Texans, we recognize that liberty is always purchased with death. Now, why was the Alamo so significant? This is a period we'll go through for the next uh, uh, couple of weeks as we talk about the, the Alamo. It was on um, the 23rd. Uh, February that year that Santa Ana rolled into San Antonio with approximately, historical figures vary, but uh, some say as little, as few as 1,800. I think it was much more than that. Some say it was over 4,000. But he had, he quite outnumbered the 150 uh, Texicans, that's what they were called back then, the 150 Texicans that were in the Alamo. And yet they had made a decision to stand their ground and they were not going to give up the Alamo. And the question we ought to ask is, why in the world did was this such a uh, such a significant thing? Uh, why did all of a sudden um, this little former Spanish mission in San Antonio uh, become uh, become so so significant? Well, we ought to understand a little uh, background history. As uh, starting in the 1820s, more and more Anglo settlers from America started to come into Texas. One of the early impresarios was Stephen F. Austin. Uh, first his father, and then his father died, and then he took over, had a, a grant from the Mexican government to settle colonists here. And more and more Anglos were coming, and they were given a measure of freedom, and they were given, according to the 
Mexican Constitution of 1824, they were giving, given a, a measure of self-government. And if you notice back in the new library conference room, there is a replica of the flag that flew over the Alamo, which has 1824 on it. And that was what they were fighting for, was a return to the government, uh, the Constitution of 1824, which had been overthrown. Uh, by the 1830s, you could see the stage was set for conflict. By 1830, the Mexican government, notice how contemporary this sounds. By 1830, the Mexican government realized that they had lost control with the increasing flow of illegal immigrants into Texas. And they had to stem the tide. And in April of 1830, they passed a new law which prohibited any immigrant from settling in Mexican territory that shared a border with their that person's native country. It was a law that was clearly designed to prevent uh, Anglo-Americans from coming into Texas. In addition to that, to that the law suspended all uh, un unfilled colonization contracts. There were a number of other impresarios that were given land grants in Texas, so the government just, by fiat, just stopped all of it. Uh, it's a tyranny of government. They um, Also, it stopped all monopolies that it had granted the colonists in regard to coastal shipping, banned all, uh, all slave trade, as well as a number of other things, imposed tariffs and imposed uh, uh, very large customs duties. Taxation is the degree to which a, a citizen is taxed is always the barometer of their freedom. Their, their freedom isn't how much you can say or freedom of the press or some of these other things. It's related to money. If you, the more money you have, the more options you have in life. The less money you have, the fewer options you have in life. And if you don't have a whole lot of money, then you have limited options and you can't do a whole lot. And if you have the freedom to make money and to uh, engage in business and economic activity without interference from the, from the government, then you have the ability to, on the basis of your own effort, your own sweat and toil, to advance and to uh, make more money and to increase in terms of your own uh, ability to do whatever you want to do, which is a mark of freedom. And when, people, when governments come in and impose more and more taxes, and whether they're in the form of an income tax or an inheritance tax or a poll tax or a, whether it's a fee to go hunting or how much you pay for your driver's license or how much you pay for your passport, all these are just hidden forms of taxes. And when you stack all that up, Americans today are paying so much more in taxes than the colonists were under Britain uh, back in, in the 1770s that we really ought to apologize to every family that had someone die in the American War for Independence because we don't care anymore. We're on the verge of probably electing somebody who thinks it's a fine thing to uh, triple or quadruple our taxes to uh, give everybody a free health care program. There's nothing free. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Somebody's got to pay and they're going to pay for all this with increased taxes. And we need people in government who aren't going to increase taxes and understand something about the fact that true freedom is related in a large degree to how, how much money the government thinks, how much money of yours the government thinks it has, it has a right to. So all of this <coughs> taxation, all this, this, uh, arbitrary changing of the law by the Mexican government, just a mark, a typical mark of tyranny. Things that were uh, agreed to, things that were legal, were suddenly declared to be illegal, and they were going to try to do everything they could to force the Anglos out of, Texan, out of Texas. And to enforce that, they did the same thing that the British did in, in the British colonies. They sent more and more troops into Texas, which just aggravated all those Scots-Irish Presbyterians to no end. And uh, <clears throat> the Texans believed that they had the right to all of this on the basis of previous contracts, previous uh, statements by the Mexican government, as well as the Constitution of 1824. But now the central government in Mexico City was asserting its, its control 
and it was a control that was illegal according to the Constitution of 1824. In 1834, the situation intensified when there was one of numerous, I can't keep up with them, revolutions in Mexico. And President Bustamante was ousted by Santa Ana. This is just one of several times Santa Ana became president. One time he became so unpopular that he resigned office so that his vice president would become president. And then he, let, then he blamed the vice president for everything that he had done. And then he led a revolution against himself and put himself back into power. Now, there's a real politician. I want to say that's somebody that Bill Clinton could learn lessons from, but I won't say that. So Santa Ana took power under the guise of being liberal. Think about that. He took... He was uh, going to bring freedom and liberty to everybody. He was going to uh, give everybody all of their hopes and dreams. And as soon as he took power, uh, he jettisoned the Constitution of 1824, rejected all of the previous freedoms that had been granted to the Mexican states. They had a measure of states' rights. He rejected all of that and consolidated all the power into Mexico City and into his own hands. So he, just, he became just another anti-American dictator, and he saw the incursion of Americans, the colonists in Texas, as a threat to his own power. So, to respond to that, he sent more troops uh, into Texas, and one of the generals that he sent in was Martin Perfecto de Cos, who was his brother-in-law. And he took up, set up his headquarters in San Antonio and at the, at the Alamo. Then in uh, late September of 1835, the uh, Mexicans learned that there was a cannon down in, uh, uh, down in uh, Gonzales, and they, that there were a number of Texans down there had their own weapons, and so they decided to go confiscate the cannon and confiscate the weapons. Whenever anybody wants to, execute, to institute arms control and violate the Second Amendment, you know right away they are just another dictator trying to establish tyranny. That when people do not have the right, the freedom to access the latest technology that the government has so that they can protect themselves from the government, then... Tyranny is around the corner. And see, that's what gun control does. This whole thing with assault weapons, which is a poorly defined term. Uh, if, if, if I don't have an assault weapon so I can defend myself against some uh, uh, attack by federal troops, not that I'm saying that that's going to happen, but golly, I think that has happened in places. If I don't have the same access to the same technology that they do, then I'm, I'm not going to be able to defend myself, and I will... I will lose my freedoms. So, <clears throat> Cos comes into Texas, and on September 30th, he sends a force of Mexicans under uh, Colonel Ugar Techia to Gonzalez to confiscate all their arms. And so, they go down there with uh, about a couple of hundred Mexicans, and they're outside of Gonzalez, and the, and the Texans learn about this, and the hue and cry goes out, and within a couple of days, they had approximately 167 uh, Texans, and so they decided there was nothing to lose, and they would uh, have a night attack or a dawn attack on the Mexicans. So early in dawn on October the 2nd, they began to uh, sneak up on the Mexicans. And somebody stepped on a dead branch or made some noise or tripped and fell, and they weren't professional, and it woke everybody up, and the fog lifted, and they're just, you know, the Mexicans facing the Texicans and what we'd call a Mexican standoff. We used to say that back when we could be politically incorrect. Now we wouldn't say that. And uh, all of a sudden somebody shot. Nobody knows who shot, and the... Uh, Mexicans started retreating and scattering, and so this was the one of the first, or was the first great victory and the first battle in the Texas Re Revolution. Then, and by December, Cos had been pretty much surrounded and bottled up in San Antonio and in the Alamo, and on December the 9th, he surrendered and he signed terms to the effect 
that he and his men would not would return to Mexico and not in any way oppose the reestablishment of the federal constitution of 1824. Well, with the defeat of his brother-in-law, Santa Ana took it rather personally, and he was quite uh, angry about this whole thing. And in his arrogance, he decided he would have to squash these uh, Anglo's in Texas. So he got his army together and headed for the border, and on. Uh, February the 16th, he crossed the Rio Grande with approximately uh, 4,000 Mexican troops. And word reached Travis at the Alamo that he had crossed the Rio Grande. They just couldn't believe that he was coming in the dead of winter like that. But it didn't matter to Santa, uh, to Santa Ana. And he moved rather rapidly, and it surprised the Texans when they learned on February the 22nd that Santa Ana was less than 10 miles from San Antonio. And so they started scrambling to try to pull together what supplies they could into the Alamo. And by uh, noon the next day, the forward, uh, the advance guard of uh, Santa Ana was coming into, into San Antonio. And on that particular day, then the next, then as they came in, I'm getting ahead of myself, as they came in on the, on the 23rd, the first thing Santa Ana did was he, raised a large red flag, which was a sign of no quarter. And because he was so angry about what the Texans had done in humiliating his brother-in-law at the Alamo, that he wasn't going to give any quarter and he was going to kill each and every one of them. And then he had his uh, bugler begin to play the Duguayo. Now, I asked several of you who think you're Texans if you could recognize this earlier. Nobody could. So I figured we needed to play it just a little bit. We got sound? If you've ever seen the John Wayne version of The Alamo, then you heard that. Or if you saw Real Bravo with John Wayne and Dean Martin. The bad guys are sitting across the street in the saloon. They hire a trumpeter to play the guayo. It's called the cutthroat song or the slit throat song. It's a Spanish song. Uh, Mishner says in his book on Texas that it was uh, the decapitation song. So you get the message. There was not going to be any quarter. Well, on the 23rd, see, I didn't say much over the weekend. Sundays, it's a little difficult to go into some of this, so I'll prim primarily talk about this on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On February 23rd, when Santa, Santa Ana arrived, Travis sent off a quick let letter to the citizens of Gonzales calling for help, and then uh, he also sent... Uh, uh, a letter to Fannin at Goliad. Fannin had about 400 troops at Goliad, and he had been plagued by self-doubts. He had dropped out of West Point, and he had sent off a couple of letters saying, please relieve me of command. And finally, he was, looked like he was getting his act together, and he tried to respond, and then I think he got some more self-doubt, and he went back. But I guess today we'd say he had a self-image problem, but I think he had some other, other problems. And then on February the 24th, which would have been... Uh, the anniversary would have been this last Sunday, two days ago, the, the day after Santa Ana arrived. Travis sent out a very well-known, very famous letter addressed to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, dated February 24, 1836. Fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I've answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. You know, there's a couple of great responses to demands for surrender in American history. There's General McCullough's response to the Battle of the Bulge when the, when the Germans demanded that he, uh, that he surrender. He just said nuts. Patton said he was an articulate individual. <laughs> and Travis just let the cannon speak for him. I think it, that said it well. 
He said, I've answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty. That was the catchword of the day, is liberty. This is only a generation and a half removed from the American Revolution. They understood what liberty was. I don't think 95% of Americans today understand what liberty is. We haven't seen the kind of liberty they had in our lifetime. Not one person here has seen the kind of liberty they had, the freedom from government interference that they had. We've lost our understanding of liberty. He says, I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Well, something happened when I printed this, and it dropped off the rest of the letter. He said, and the conclusion is, he says, Give me help, O my country, victory or death, signed William Barrett uh, Travis. Yes, I'll have to read that letter. The ending is great, and the printer somehow... Oh, here it is. Here it is. He he finished victory or death. P.S. The Lord is on our side. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and got into the walls 20 or 30 head of bees. These men were, I don't know what their spiritual status was. Many of them were believers. That was the era. The Second Great Awakening had been waxing fairly strong in the American West for about two decades. The vast majority of the men in the Alamo, the vast majority of the men and women who came to Texas at this time were Scots-Irish Presbyterians. Their uh, ancestors, just one or two generations back, had come from Ireland. Before that, they had been in Scotland. And these were, in many cases, men and women who were in Presbyterian uh, churches that preached and proclaimed the gospel. So I would assume that the majority of these people were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the one of the factors at this time in American history and in American church history was that because settlers were moving west, that many times uh, they, they didn't get as much uh, instruction in the Word in, and went or went to church simply because everybody was too busy moving. Um, one of, that was one of the things that caused a problem, a theological issue in that era, is because, like in any era, people look around and there's churches been growing and everybody's been doing well, and then all of a sudden it, uh, the numbers begin to dwindle, and we ask the wrong question. We say, what am I doing wrong? Always the wrong question. And so that's what, what a lot of the... Uh, uh, denominations in America started asking at that in the 1820s and 1830s is why, why is the church getting smaller? What are we doing wrong? They came up with the wrong answer, of course, and they started coming up with all kinds of uh, uh, techniques and uh, gimmicks to try to get people back into church. The reason the churches were getting smaller is somebody was they were um, they were a little ahead of Horace Greeley, but they were already headed west. And so the churches on the eastern seaboard and just across the Appalachians were losing people because they were migrating. And when you're busy as a pioneer and you're just trying to survive, you don't have as much time to go to church. Churches, you know, may be, uh, you know, to get there by horse may take you three or four hours to get into town, three or four hours back. But every family had, had Bibles, and they, the head of the house, the, the fathers would read from the Bible uh, Travis's grandfather was a Presbyterian preacher, so I'm fairly confident that he was a believer and that he had grown up uh, very much involved in going to a Presbyterian church back in South Carolina and as he moved west. So this is just some idea of the heritage that we have, and I think it's important in churches today and that we remind people of our 
of our Christian heritage and the heritage of liberty that we have because you sure don't get it in school and you're not going to hear it on the evening news. 60 Minutes isn't going to give you an objective replay of any of this. And you certainly can't rely on Hollywood films to be your source source of knowledge. And if churches don't teach a little history, a little American history, a little bit of our spiritual heritage along with the Word, then we will be uh, the saddest of all people because people who don't understand their past have no capacity to appreciate their present, and they have already sacrificed their future. Now let's open our Bibles to another situation in the past, which is the Solomon's Prayer of Dedication, Solomon's Prayer of Dedication of the Temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. And by way of review, I have pointed out that the key element in this prayer is that Solomon is uh, beseeching God. He he is pleading with God on the basis of promises God gave in uh, in Leviticus uh, 27 and 28 and Deuteronomy 29 and 30 that even though Israel would eventually disobey God, God would have to discipline them to the point of removing them from the land. God had promised in those passages that there would come a time when God would bring them back from the four corners of the earth, when God would restore them to the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there would be a special spiritual bond between Israel and God, and this is yet to come. It hasn't happened yet, but this is this is the backdrop for Solomon's prayer. He says, Lord, I know this is a rebellious people. They will sin, that you will discipline them in all of the different ways that you have promised, and he rehearses this several different ways as he goes through this prayer, and each time he would go through uh, several of these uh, stages of discipline, and then he would conclude by saying, I ask you to forgive this people and bring them back to the land. So we see that his prayer grows out of his understanding of Leviticus 26 and 27, Deuteronomy 30. His mind is so saturated with the law, the instruction of God, as it was supposed to be. According to the Mosaic law, the king of Israel was supposed to handwrite out his own copy of the law and work on it every single day under the supervision of the priests. And I think that's what Solomon did. At this stage in his life, he's extremely positive. He's, he loves God with all of his heart and all of his mind. And he is studying the word and applying the word. And so we see an example here in this prayer of how our prayer should be. That we're just so saturated with the word of God that when we pray to God, our prayers sound like they come right out of the Bible. So that also reminds us that we should be uh, memorizing Scripture. Now, one of the things I pointed out last time is that we see four different words for prayer in this particular section. I'm just going to hit these as high points as we go through. The first is tefillah, which is the word for uh, the noun for prayer, and it describes a prayer that is similar to a plea. It's not just a, well, Lord, would you please do this? There, there's an emotional intensity behind it because the person truly wants God to act a certain way. And the uh, cognate of this word today, there's a cognate of this word that is related to the prayer shawl. The, that's the name of the prayer shawl that you will see uh, various Jews wear. A second word that's used for prayer is a word for supplication used in 1 Kings 8.28, and we'll see it all the way through this, this, this chapter, and it's the request for favor. It's a recognition of, and that he's dependent upon God's grace, that when we come to God as a, as a creature appealing to the Creator, we are, in essence, saying, God, be gracious to me, a sinner. There's an appeal uh, for grace there. A third word that's used is a word renot, used only one time in this section, and that's in this verse, has this idea it can either be a shout for joy or a moan. On the other hand, context tells you whether it's joyful or whether it's uh, sorrowful, but it's, it shows once again that there's a certain uh, emotional intensity, not emotion for the sake of emotion, but you know what I mean when you're just, you've gone through situations in your life where you feel like you're just uh, crawling on your knees figuratively, 
to God and you're just uh, grabbing hold of the throne of grace uh, with the last ounce of strength in your being and you know that there is a sense of of uh, uh, involvement and emotion in your prayer life at that time because there's a uh, you, you because of your situation and that's that's what we see here with Solomon. This isn't just some academic exercise. And then we have another word, palal. This is a verb. It's related to the the noun tefillah, same root, P-L-L. And it has the idea of intercession. But as the word develops down through time in the Old Testament, we see that this word has a certain judicial context to it. And by the time you get into the the period after the exile and into the early intertestamental period, the word always has a judicial context. And what we're seeing here is that, as I've said again and again and again, and some of you are getting it, is that God defines his relationship to his creatures in legal documents, in covenants. And and everything that God does in human history is structured according to law. Law provides absolutes, but if law derives from the creature, then law is always going to be relative and always going to be, uh, you can always manipulate it. Uh, law ultimately has to be sourced in that which never changes, the faithfulness, the immutability of God. And so these four words that we see here are words that are repeated again and again as we go down through uh, this particular session, session, section. Now, when we get to the thirtieth verse, which is at the end of this introduction, it's the first time we have the word "forgive." Solomon says, "May you hear the supplication." Uh, he says, literally, it says that you turn to hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, that's a imperative of request. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. That is what this whole prayer is about. And it sets the tone of what he's going to ask. He's just, he just introduces this. That's, that's what we've had in these verses from verse 23 to 30 is just the introduction, sort of the prologue uh, to his prayer. The word that he uses for prayer here, I mean for forgive here, is salach. Salah means to forgive. Uh, sometimes it's translated to pardon. It means to spare uh, uh, someone to be forgiven. And this particular verb is special because only God salah, just like only God baraz in Genesis 1, the, the word for create in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word bara is only used of God's activity. The word salach is always used of God's activity. It's never used of man. You never can salach somebody else. This shows that this is the paradigm. We model our forgiveness on God's forgiveness, but our forgiveness of one another will never approach that of God. Uh, we see a glimmer of this idea in Ephesians chapter 4 when uh, Paul uh, challenges the Ephesians and he says that you're to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That's the standard. And so we have to think about how God forgave us. How many times we have been, done things that are abhorrent to God? How many times have we uh, betrayed God since we were saved? I'm not talking about how many times you were antagonistic to God before you were saved, but how many times have you been antagonistic to God, disobedient to God, Rebellious. How many times have you knowingly, willfully, uh, consciously uh, sinned, chosen to disobey God, and then you just say, well, all I have to do is come back and just tell God what I did, and I'll be forgiven. And God doesn't say, well, now, look, you know, you've done this 5,000 times, and now you're coming back, and I'm just tired of this. And you've got to give me a little sense of your sincerity or I'm not going to forgive you the 501st time. And God never says that. However, that's how we treat other people. You know, somebody betrays us, somebody hurts us, you know, the second time, and we're saying, no, no, buddy, I'm not, I'm just not going to have anything to do with you. And Peter got real confused about this, and he asked the Lord, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? He thought he was being very generous there. 
And the Lord said, no, 70 times 7. You're just getting started when you've forgiven. And that means in one day. And that means, forgiveness means that you remove from your mentality any desire for vengeance, for personal uh, retribution, any desire of vindictiveness, and that you are going to respond to that person in the same way God responds to you after you confess your sins. And we're going to look at a very important psalm related to this in just a minute. But this whole concept of forgiveness, like I pointed out last time, is runs through Scripture. Micah is another passage who is a God like you. This is one of the things that distinguishes him. He pardons, and that's the same word, salach, he pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. That means tomorrow, today when you sin and disobey God and you confess that sin, that tomorrow when you uh, come to God in prayer, God's not going to say, now wait a minute, we had a little issue yesterday and before, uh, before we're going to go any further, maybe we just need to resolve this whole sin thing that you're doing and, and I'm going to hold that against you for a while. God, we just name it, and, and God forgets it. We admit it to him, and he forgets it. He does not retain his anger forever, Micah says, because he delights in mercy. And that's how we should be. We should delight in mercy. And the word there for mercy uh, is uh, chesed, loving kindness. We should delight in forgiving people Delight in being gracious to people, delight in being generous with people, and not being uh, the way we usually are, which is so self-absorbed that it takes us months to get over the fact that somebody did something that, that offended us. And we live in a culture that has, has made an idol out of our own self-absorbed sense of being offended. People get offended at everything. I mean, it is amazing. I was watching something on Fox News last night, and they had this uh, woman on there, and they, they just mentioned, well, oh, oh this, this, picture of, um, this picture of Obama with his, uh, I mean, he's just probably doing nothing more than any other political leader going over to Africa and dressing up like an African. But she said, oh, I'm just offended that somebody would put this out. I said, just get over yourself, lady. You know, why does everybody want to take offense at the slightest things? I mean, this is the whole principle behind when Jesus says that when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said that, he wasn't addressing a literal problem of cheek slapping in Israel at the time. I never quite thought about that. Dan Ingram wrote his master's thesis on this. He said, you know, was this a real problem that people were walking around Israel slapping each other on the cheek? And, and what you'd have to do is now you had to learn to turn the other cheek. No, it was an idiom for if someone does something that you can take offense over, are you going to take, let yourself be offended? And what Jesus is saying is don't be so hypersensitive that you let yourself get offended over every little thing that comes along. If you do, you're going to spend all your time just, just reacting and being offended. And it has to do with mental attitude. We need to delight in mercy, delight in, in forgiveness. Now, as we look at this doctrine of forgiveness, it's just a tough one. I think of all the doctrines that we talk about. The, the toughest ones are, are, have to do with this whole concept of impersonal and unconditional love and forgiving other people because that just runs so counter to our, our sin natures. Now, it runs more counter to some of your sin natures than others. And usually the one that it doesn't really, it's not such a problem, offends the one where it is such a problem. Then you just have even more problems. But we have to understand that forgiveness is patterned on what Christ did on the cross, just as love is patterned on what Christ did on the cross. And that's why love and forgiveness are real signs of spiritual, of spiritual growth. 
Forgiveness, in its basic sense, in English, this is just out of Webster's Dictionary, says it's the sense of stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense or a mistake. If you're feeling resentful or bitter, the only person you're hurting is yourself. If somebody really, really betrayed you, they're not giving it another moment's thought. And for the next six months, six years, 60 years, you're the one who's messing up your own soul and your own spiritual life by dwelling on it. So part of forgiveness is, is, is just uh, learning to let it go because of what Christ did on the cross. And it's giving up all that sense of uh, resentment for an insult. Uh, to, it has the idea, the second category is a very important category, to grant relief from payment of a debt. got an economic sense to it. That's The Greek word afiemi has that same sense, and we'll see that when we get into uh, Psalm 103 tonight, which is a psalm about forgiveness, that this is, this is a key element, that sin is a debt, and when God forgave it, he canceled the debt. And that's just as if, let's say, you owed me $100,000. And I had the bank note on it. I, uh, let's say it's a mortgage, and I hold the mortgage on it, and I just say, you know, I'm just going to tear this up. It's paid in full. No more, you, you now own the house. The debt is forgiven. Now, <clears throat> can you pay me anything to enhance that? No, see, that's what most people are trying to do. Christ paid the debt on the cross, and there's a lot of people who are trying to somehow help him pay it. No, it's already paid. If I take you out to dinner and we go to a restaurant and I pay the bill, afterwards you can't, you can't try to add to that. It's already paid. It's paid in full. You can't add to that. We just accept it. And that's part of what grace-oriented, uh, being grace-oriented, it, grace-oriented is all about, is it is accepting gifts. Some people love to give. Have you ever noticed that some people love to give? The people who love to give don't know how to receive we have a hard time with it. So you think, oh, that person just loves to give. They're so grace-oriented. No, grace-oriented isn't how much you love to give. It's how, how easy it is for you to receive. Well, let me give you something back. Let me do something for you. Next week, you took me out to dinner. Well, two weeks later, you say, well, you know, you took me out to dinner the last time. Let me take you out. Well, now you're working for it. It's tit for tat. No, that's not Grace. Grace says, well, I appreciate that. That's wonderful. It's just a free gift. And that tells us something about how much we accept what, what Christ did, did for us. So we went through a number of these words last time. Afiemi is the Greek word, and it has that same sense of canceling a debt or a penalty. It's just wiped out. It's just, it's just completely removed, and it is no longer an issue. Now, a key psalm... For forgiveness is Psalm 103. So turn with me there. Psalm 103. This is a psalm that is a declarative praise declaring what God has done in forgiveness. There are two types of praise psalms. There's declarative praise and descriptive praise. This is a declarative praise. And it's a psalm of David. And this was to be sung. So while we go through this, I want you to think of that in terms of, of singing this as a, as a song. And think about just the lyrics and the quality of the lyrics here. Let me just read parts of this to you. And then we'll do another little fun thing. And then we'll get back to it. So Psalm of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And bless here has a sense of praise God. It's a call to praise him. And praising God isn't just saying praise God. It is talking about who he is and what he has done. It puts substance to the praise, content to the praise. It's not just, uh, it's not just some rhetorical device. It is something that that comes from the heart and is a response in, to God's grace and what he has done. 
So he calls upon himself, his own soul, recognizing the fact that it's so easy for us to get so absorbed with the details of our lives and the circumstances of our lives that we forget to be God-oriented and grace-oriented and grateful for what he has done. And so David is reminding himself, his own soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he starts to describe them, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you, with steadfast love uh, and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness, in verse 6, and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love or loving kindness, chesed there. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Now this particular psalm, was the inspiration for a hymn. It's hymn number three in your hymnal, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Now, we're not going to sing it. I ought to do to Sally what was done to me the other day. I'd say, now, Sally's going to play this for us. We'll just see how. I was, this last week weekend, I had an opportunity. There was a group of men from a, a uh, black church in Dallas that came into came to Houston for a for a spiritual retreat. I don't know why you'd come to Houston for a spiritual retreat, but <laughs> they came they came out and asked me to speak to the group on Friday night. And then uh, one of the uh, pastors here in town, who was a student of mine a number of years ago, was supposed to preach on Saturday morning. And so I thought, well, I'd like to hear him, and I'd like to just you know spend some time with these these men, this church. So I'll go over and have a free breakfast and. And uh, and and hear hear Leroy preach because he's good and I haven't seen him in a while, and so I went over there and I was just sitting there minding my own business, drinking my cup of coffee, and and um, uh, Dr. Bell got up. And I thought he was going to introduce Leroy, and he said, "Well, Dr. Lacey just called and he can't make it this morning, so Dr. Dean's going to preach for us this morning." <laughs> so you got to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. That was all the notice I had. <laughs> so, I won't ask Sally to play this. Pray, listen to the words. Listen to the words. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Listen to that. That's right out of the psalm. Those are the verbs that we see in verses uh, 3 and 4. Forgiven, healed, redeemed, crowned. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia, which mean, which is a call to praise God. Praise thee, praise the everlasting King. Praise him for his grace and favor to our fathers in distress. See, there's the reference here to uh, Moses. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Uh, to our fathers in distress, praise him still the same as ever, slow to chide and swift to bless. See, he is uh, slow to anger and swift in loving kindness. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, verse 8, which is a quote from uh, Exodus, uh, I think it's 36. Frail as summer's flower we flourish, blows the wind and it is gone. See, at the end there, he is mindful, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. The, the poetry of the, of the lyrics, frail as summer's flower we flourish, blows the wind and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. Alleluia, alleluia, Play, praise the high eternal one. Angels in the height adore him. 
ye behold him face to face. Saints triumphant bow before him, gathered in from every race. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise with us the God of grace. So that's an example of how someone who let their mind be saturated with Scripture then takes the doctrine that's there and reshapes it and uh, writes a psalm of praise that reflects what is in the Scripture. And it has depth and richness to it because there was a uh, depth and richness in the spiritual life of the man who wrote the words. But if you don't have that depth in, uh, and spiritual depth from doctrine in the life of an individual, then they can't write like that. It, it just isn't going to happen. So we come to Psalm 103, and the first section, the first five verses, is a call upon people to praise God for His loving kindness expressed in forgiveness. And that's what you normally have in a, in a, a praise psalm, is there will be a call upon people to praise God expressed here as, Bless the Lord, O my soul. We are to bless God for His loving kindness. That's that uh, Hebrew word hesed that is so rich in the Old Testament, meaning His loyal love, His faithful love, His covenant love, His never-changing, steadfast love. I'm, I'm reading from the uh, New English Version here. Uh, yeah, every now and then I use that. The, it's a new translation. I like to read it every now and then just to see how it, it handles the uh, Hebrew and the Greek in comparison to other translations. And it, I notice they translate chesed with steadfast love, which is a good translation. You just can't do it with one, with one word. So there's the call. He, he reminds himself to not be forgetful of God's forgiveness in the first two verses. And then he is praising God because of what he does for all of us. He does four things. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, and crowns. Now, uh, if we look at those... In verses 3 through 5, he forgives, that's our word, salach, he forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. That goes back to, uh, once again, goes back to the Mosaic Law. And, and in the Mosaic Law, God said, if you are obedient in the land, then you're not going to be visited with all of these diseases of the pagans. But if they're disobedient, then that would be part of the divine discipline. In verse 4, who redeems? Now, every one of you heard that and you were thinking salvation, redemption. But that's not what it's talking about. Redeems your life from the pit. The pit is death. And what this is talking about is that in uh, life-threatening situations, in just in living out phase 2, in life-threatening situations, God protects us and watches over us and, and takes care of us. It's not... Uh, it's not the same word, I mean, it's not the same concept here because of the, the context redeems your life from destruction, literally from the pit. But the pit is a, is a metaphor, the pit of destruction. And so it's the idea of God protecting us who crowns you with loving kindness, chesed, and tender mercy, steadfast love, and uh, the NEV translates that, the st- steadfast love and mercy. In verse 5, who satisfies your mouth with good things. God gives us what we need. He gives it abundantly. He gives us more. Uh, he, he answers our prayers above anything we can ask or think. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He gives us strength and energy uh, to meet each element of every day. But what's in, another thing that is interesting in terms of the, of the uh, words that are used here is that when we go down to uh, the, the next section, which is um, oh, I lost my. Uh, we go to the next section, which starts in verse six. Look at verse six. I don't have a slide on. It. That's why I was looking for it. The Lord works righteousness. In this next section, verse six describes and summarizes. It's sort of the topical sentence for verses six to eighteen. The actions of God's righteousness and judgment toward who? Toward the oppressed. Now, David's not a Marxist-Leninist. This is not social oppression. Now, every liberal church in Houston 
is going to have some pastors going to talk about how we need to have pity for the poor and how we need to increase the welfare system and that we're just so we're just so callous to all the homeless people and everything else and that this is the essence of Christianity. That's not what the oppressed here is not talking about those who are just economically deprived or who have been socially rejected. It is the it is the Hebrew word asak, A-S-A-Q, asak. And this word is used sometimes of somebody who is socially or politically oppressed. But that doesn't fit the context at all, does it? This is a hymn of praise for forgiveness. The word also refers to someone who is uh, who is oppressed by their indebtedness. I'm not going to have anybody raise their hands to see if they've ever overused their credit cards. But if anybody's ever been in debt, you know how oppressive that can be. And that's what this is talking about. Somebody who's so burdened by debt that they can't get out from under the burden. So it's not talking about poor people in, who are being maltreated by a government. It's talking about sinners who have a debt of sin to pay, a debt penalty to pay to God in terms of the penalty for sin. And it's impossible for us to pay that debt. We, that is a sense of oppression here in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed by sin, who are indebted. And um, as sinners, we are debtors unable to pay for sin, and God is the one who redeems us. This is seen clearly in Colossians 2.14 where Jesus is said to have wiped out the certificate of debt. It's a literally a handwritten bill of debt. Certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That paid the debt in full. And that's what uh, David is talking about here, is that, that God is the one who provides justice, and he has satisfied his own justice in the payment of this this debt. And then he uses the historical illustration in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and uh, abounding in uh, steadfast love. That's a quote from Exodus chapter 34, uh, verse 6. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. God forgives and he forgets. That's the point of verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, hata, missing the mark, nor punished us according to our iniquities, avon, that which transgressed his character. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness, his steadfast love toward those who fear him, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. No matter how far east you go, you never end up being west. You just keep going east. And when you go west the same way, you just keep going west, that you never quite get to east. You never get there. And this is an image for saying that it's impossible. There's no... There's no finite boundary on this. And God completely, totally uh, separates us from our sin so that our sin is no longer the issue when we are forgiven. And he, re- he is mindful of the fact that we are of flesh. We are of clay. We are of dust. He is, recognizes, uh, he knows our frame, that we are of dust. And so he shows compassion to us, recognizing our limitations. That is what forgiveness is. And so Solomon is going to call upon God to make sure that God fulfills his promise to forgive the Israelites once they have egregiously sinned and he's disciplined them, taken them out of the land, that God, when they turn back to him, when they confess their sin, that God will, that God will indeed forgive. And so that's a great promise. It has great application for us and we'll come back and continue to work through it. Uh, in about three or four weeks. One other announcement as we close. Our topic earlier was liberty. One of the great facets of our liberty is that we have the privilege to vote. It is a privilege. Many of us have forgotten that. But part of what happens next Tuesday is that not only do we have a primary, 
But next Tuesday night, your local precinct is going to have a precinct meeting. And your precinct meeting is when a lot of issues happen in this country at the grassroots level. And I don't want to compete with that with Bible class. This is an important thing. We, I, I, when I was a kid, I always went to precinct meetings with my parents. I haven't been to a precinct meeting since I was an adult, I must confess. That's not something to be proud of. And I would suggest that probably if I had a show of hands, uh, that would probably be true of, of many of you, that you have not been to precinct meetings. And that's just true. We take it for granted. This is a fabulous privilege that we have in this country to vote and to be part of this. And recently I was, I was told by a friend of mine who's involved in precinct politics that in uh, Fort Bend County where there are a lot of Muslims, that uh, there have been, uh, and see so what happens at the, at the precinct level is they can get stuff put into the party platform that, that it takes a while to get that overturned. And these Muslims voted on a platform position that America was founded on the ethical principles of Judeo-Christian Islamic ethics. And it went to the state level before that got turned down. And in our PC world, if there's nobody there to stand up for objective truth, then we're not going to have a whole lot to say about it if we didn't do something. So whatever party you uh, are associated with, whatever you want to do, we want to encourage you to next Tuesday night to be involved in uh, your local precinct meeting. So we will not have Bible class next Tuesday night, and I hope that frees you up to be involved. We will have Bible class on Thursday night. The next week's the Chafer Conference, and the week after that I'm going to be on vacation. So it will be about a month before we get back into our study on Solomon's Prayer. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this evening, to be challenged by these things, to become reacquainted with the fact that our liberty is a precious prized possession, and it was purchased on the field of battle by uh, hundreds of thousands of men and women who have uh, given the, made the ultimate sacrifice that we might have the privilege to vote and the privilege to uh, determine our own destiny. We pray that for this nation, for our leaders, we pray for uh, people who understand uh, absolute truth, that they will uh, still be salt and light in this nation. We pray that you would continue to watch over us and protect us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ may be freely proclaimed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.